today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear the truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. Sometimes doing the right thing is a very difficult thing, and you can find yourself in difficult situations. Why? Because you chose to do the right thing rather than the popular thing. Beloved, that's what we are called to do, is to do the right thing, not the popular thing, not the easy thing. John called two of his disciples to him after he had heard what uh, their report was about the things of Jesus. And they said, go to Jesus and ask him, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? The moment someone becomes a true disciple of Jesus, he also becomes an alien to this present world. Therefore, Christians are rejected by the world. However, we must not grow weary in doing good in the face of trials. In today's message from Luke, Pastor David teaches us that even John the Baptist struggled with doing the right thing in an ungodly world. When he was thrown into prison for rebuking Roman authority for wrongdoing, A good report concerning Jesus' ministry encouraged John to continue speaking God's truth. Now here's Pastor David with part one of today's message entitled, Still God in Our Chaos. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and even when I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life, it's your perfect love that casts out fear, and I won't turn back because I know you're here. There's probably been storms in our life. There's probably been storms and areas in our life that seem to be absolutely overwhelming at the time. It's something that you hadn't planned on, hadn't put in your schedule, hadn't calendared, hadn't figured you'd ever get to that place and point in time, but suddenly you find yourself right in the middle of it, right in the, right in the depths of it, right in the darkness of it. Uh, a valley is something that, again, there's, there's no easy escape in the valley. And yet, you found yourself there. Some of you have, have, have been through that valley here recently and you've seen God work and move in your life and you just praise the Lord today that you're living, you're breathing, that you're even here. Some of you might be in the valley even this morning. You've come and there's stuff going on in your life and you don't have all the answers. You don't have all the, all the understanding of why uh, what's happening is happening, uh, where it's going to end, how long it's going to go before it ends. And that's the reason why we need to know, we need to understand the greatness of our God and the reality of His passion and His compassion toward us. Today I want to focus on some things within Luke chapter 7. That's where we're at today, Luke chapter 7. Some things dealing with John the Baptist. 
There's actually three different inferences to John the Baptist as we go uh, looking from oh, about verse 17 where we're going to start this morning on through verse uh, 35. Three different inferences to John the Baptist. We're going to look at the first of the three. I think it's going to speak to many of us that are here today, probably to, to most of us in the days that are coming. And I think you'll understand what I'm talking about as we get into the study. In verses 17 through 23... We find a time of, of questioning from John. He, he, it's a question in reference to the ministry of Jesus. And in, then in verses 24 through 28, Jesus actually commends John to his disciples for being the, the, the greatest prophet of those that are born of women. And then in verses 29 through 35, Jesus speaks about the rejection of the people for the ministry of John the Baptist as well as for his own ministry. He says that, again, we played the flute and you didn't dance. But let's look back up in, in verse 17 this morning, Luke chapter 7, verse 17. Now, this may or may not be a natural break for you in your particular Bible, your particular version, but to me it does seem to be a natural place to pick up from. Jesus had been up on the mountains, and we've gone through this over the last several weeks. He'd been up on the mountains. He had taught his disciples. Again, it was the same teaching that we find in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, those things. This was Luke's version that we looked at earlier on teaching his disciples what it means to be a, a citizen of the kingdom and how to live as a citizen of the kingdom while you're an alien here in this place. How many of you realize you're aliens, okay? We, yeah, yeah, everybody, I'm not an alien. No, if you know Christ, this is not your home. You're a citizen of a different country, a different place. He, and he taught his disciples how to live in this place while they're still characters. The, the, the difference of their character, while the difference of the direction and the purpose of their life. Then he came down off the mountain and he healed the centurion's servant while he was still away from the house. Remember, he didn't go up and touch him. He didn't anoint him. He just spoke the word and the centurion's servant was healed. And then after that, they went over toward the, the village of Nain. And as he was going into the village, the funeral procession came out and Jesus touched the casket of a young man uh, being, uh, being prepared or led to be buried. Following behind that was his mom, who is also a widow. We spoke about that here in the previous weeks. Now we come up to verse 17. And this report about him, again, went throughout all Judea. And all the surrounding region. And then the disciples of John reported to John, reported to John concerning all of these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And when the men had come to him, had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour, Jesus cured many of the infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. In verse 22, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John, go and tell John the things which you have seen and heard that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. The report of the ministry of Jesus, not only the 
healing of the centurion's son, but also that young man that was resuscitated from death back into life and gone out throughout all of Judea and the surrounding regions. John the Baptist, we found out earlier, and we know through the other gospel accounts, is in prison right now. And there seems to be some kind of a freedom while he's in prison because his disciples are able to come and go. And some of his disciples were out and they had heard the things about Jesus. They had heard some of the miracles. Maybe they had even been there while some of them had happened. And they went back and they shared these things with John. And at this time, again, John speaks to them. And though he is there in prison, these things, again, weighing on his heart, weighing on his understanding, because he had been thrown into prison because he stood for the truth, because he continued to proclaim the things that he knew that God had led him to speak and, and to cry out. And we read earlier on in, in, in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3 that Herod, the tetrarch, the, the leader, the king of, of that area, because he was rebuked by John the Baptist, because of his relationship with Herodias, who was actually his brother Philip's wife. And John says, well, you've got your brother Philip's wife living with you as your wife, and that's not right. It's sin. Well, because he had been rebuked by John, not only for Herod's relationship with Herodias, but also for all the other evils that Herod was doing, well, Herod had him shut up in prison. So that's where we find John. And again, we, we look at this and we say, again, he was doing the right thing. He was doing what he felt God had called him to do. And yet here he ends up in prison. Sometimes doing the right thing doesn't always lead to great results in your own life, does it? Sometimes doing the right thing is a very difficult thing. And you can find yourself in difficult situations. Why? Because you chose to do the right thing rather than the popular thing. Beloved, that's what we are called to do, is to do the right thing, not the popular thing, not the easy thing. John called two of his disciples to him after he had heard what uh, their report was about the things of Jesus. And they said, go to Jesus and ask him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now, this is where I want to camp for a bit this morning. Pretty significant event in the life of Jesus uh, and in the life of John the Baptist, both their lives as well as their ministry. John was the forerunner of the Christ, and here he is. He's asking a question that appears to need some kind of reconfirmation within his life. Well, or even it shows a maybe a doubt, maybe a lack of faith in John. He comes, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? There's basically three different ways that we can look at this question that historically different uh, uh, pastors, teachers, commentators have looked at that question of when John asked, are you the coming one? Do we look for another? First of all, maybe it was John in trying to affirm or uh, encourage his own disciples. Here these men had been following and they'd been learning the truth from John the Baptist. They were learning the truth of God, who he was and what his word declared. They were learning that they could trust him, that they could depend upon him in every area of their lives. And no doubt John had taught them about the coming one. After all, many of those disciples were probably with him there during the baptism of Jesus. This coming one is a messianic term. It's used throughout the Old Testament. The coming one would be the Messiah. He would be the deliverer. 
He would be the redeemer. And again, he was going to be the one to restore Israel. And for those of that time, they thought that the Messiah, that the redeemer, that the deliverer would also deliver them from the oppression of the Romans. They thought when Messiah comes, we'll be able to cast off this burden and this this, this overwhelming control of, of the Romans and we'll be free again. Earlier on, again, in the gospel record of, of the Apostle John, in, in John's gospel, John the Baptist had spoken in reference to Jesus. And he said that I saw the Spirit descending upon him from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. He says, I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom the Spirit is descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and I've testified that this is the Son of God, speaking about Jesus. These are the words of John the Baptist. And the Gospel tells us that again, on the next day, John the Baptist stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked by, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So John understood and he taught that and he showed that to his disciples. But now John's in prison. And perhaps there was a bit of confusion with, with John's disciples in all of this as they now see his situation in prison for doing the right thing while the one who is supposed to be the deliverer continues on ministering to people, teaching, and doing miracles. So if he's the deliverer, how come he's not coming and delivering John out of prison? If he's the one to, to, to come and, and, and be the, the redeemer, why isn't he coming and doing something with John? Perhaps that's what the situation was. And perhaps John the Baptist also understood that times were going to get a whole lot harder before they got easier. Maybe he sent his disciples to Jesus in order that they might be reaffirmed in their faith that Jesus is the Messiah of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. I believe that sometimes we look on the outside and we see what's going on and sometimes we can wonder, is God really actively involved in that individual's life? Why is, it, why is that one going through so much? And we, we, we weep for others. We have, again, that, that, that empathy and sympathy for what's going on in others' lives. And we stand back because we don't understand what God's doing in our own life, much less what He's doing in other lives. And we kind of wonder, wow, what is God doing? And maybe they just needed that reaffirmation. As needful as reaffirmation is in all of our lives, there's also another possibility. It was during the same time frame that there was a a theory that was going on that there was a need for two different messiahs. That there would be the suffering messiah, but there would also be another messiah who is the, the conquering, the victorious messiah. A lot of the rabbinical theories of that day, they they tried to justify the contradictions that they found within the scriptures. Such scriptures as in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, where we read, And behold, one like the Son of Man shall come in clouds of heaven. That's a messianic declaration, and he's coming in clouds of heaven, very victorious. But then they read in Zechariah 9.9, where it was written, Behold, your king comes to you lowly and riding upon a young colt. Well, wait a minute, he's coming in the clouds, but he's coming on a colt. Which is it? Is he coming in the clouds or is he coming in the colt? Colt or clouds, which one? And it's confusing to them. There's other Old Testament scriptures. They look and see in Isaiah chapter 11, 
where we read, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. But then in the same prophet's writings, we read in Isaiah chapter 53, these words. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth and he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. How can he at the same time strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and uh, with the breath of his lips slay the wicked and yet at the same time be slain and bruised? There seemed to be one Messiah coming in power while the other one was coming with an obvious state of humility. A particular rabbi, actually of the uh, 20th century, Rabbi Raphael Patai, Really learned guy. I won't go into all of his background, but uh, well, uh, uh, well written. Holds a couple of different doctorates, and he, he is a Jew. He's not a Messianic Jew. He's not a Christian. He's a Jew, and he writes about again the 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 history of this concept of Messiah among the Jews, and in his writing, in particular book that he wrote, the Messiah texts texts. He writes about this theory of two messiahs. And he says this, that when the death of the Messiah became an established tenet, in other words, it was, it was an established belief over a large portion of Judaism. He says, when the death of the Messiah became an established tenet, this was felt to be irreconcilable with the belief in the Messiah as Redeemer. That Redeemer who would usher in the blissful millennium of the Messianic age. The dilemma was solved by splitting the person of the Messiah in two. One of them called Messiah ben Joseph, and that's after Joseph, one of the twelve sons of, of Jacob or of Israel. The, the Messiah ben Joseph, who was to raise up the armies of Israel against all of their enemies, and after many victories and miracles, would then fall victim to Gog and Magog. But there was another Messiah, a Messiah ben David, who will come after him, or, as some believed, the first will come back to life. Interesting concept for the Jews to have. This next Messiah, Messiah ben David, he will come after him and will lead Israel to the ultimate victory, the triumph, and the messianic era of bliss. So it could be that John himself was battling with this concept, this theory, that whether or not Jesus was the coming one, or is there also going to be a second Messiah? Did he perhaps think to, that in that prison cell that surely Jesus isn't the complete or total of Messiahship, otherwise he'd been breaking me out of prison. He would have been releasing me from this joint. Perhaps Jesus of Nazareth is that suffering Messiah, but yet there's going to be another yet to come. This particular Messiah isn't meeting all of my needs at this current time. Perhaps I need to look for another. Are you the coming one, or should we, or do we, or do we have to look for another? 
Sometimes in our lives we think, yeah, Jesus is good for some areas in my life, but there's other areas in my life that I've just got to take a handle of myself. I've just got to deal with these things myself. In my own logic, in my own experience, my expertise, my talents, I've got to do this on my own. Oh, Jesus is good for that. But the rest of the stuff I've got to be taken care of. I have a responsibility in this. Other, without understanding and knowing the reality that Jesus is Lord over all of our life and in control over all of our life. Personally, I don't believe the problem with John was that he thought that there was two messiahs. One of the many things that I love about this book, the Bible, is the reality of the people that it speaks about and the events that take place. It doesn't try to soft-soap anything at all. Within the pages of the Bible, there's real men, there's real women who suffer, who fear, who doubt, and yet God still uses them and works and moves in their lives. God shows us through the people of his word all of the bumps, all of the warts, all of the scars, all of these weaknesses of those people that he's called and then he uses those very weaknesses to bring glory to himself, just like he told the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. I'm afraid that sometimes we put men like John the Baptist in a position and a place that they're not capable of being. A man that would never have doubt, a man that would never have fear. But John was flesh and blood, just like you and I are. I believe that, yeah, in his life, there were times of doubt. There were times of fear. Do you remember in the book of Acts, again, after the Apostle Paul had gone through a lot of, uh, uh, again, uh, pressure and opposition there in Corinth, that the Lord came to him at night in a vision. The words of the Lord to the great Apostle Paul says, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. Why why do you think the Lord told the Apostle Paul, don't be afraid? Do you think it might be that Apostle Paul was afraid? He wouldn't say that otherwise. I believe that this great man of the faith, this guy who wrote most of our New Testament, responsible for giving births of, of churches all over that area, I believe that he's flesh and blood just like you and I. There are times in his life that fear or doubt would come in just like you and I. I think that, again, because the the opposition against him was so strong, he needed to be encouraged. And, beloved, even the bravest and the most faithful of us all, we need to be encouraged at times. We know why John was in prison. We know why John the Baptist was there in the prison under Herod. He was more than willing to face the consequences of following God with a whole heart in his life. And you know what? It cost him something. It cost him his personal freedom. Are you willing to follow God with a whole heart no matter what it costs you? That you would continue to remain faithful to all that God is calling you to regardless of what takes place in your life, regardless of the opposition that you might face in your life. I sometimes wonder if I'd be willing to follow God that far. Where suddenly it came and said, you deny Christ or I'll kill your wife or 
do other atrocious things to him. We hope that today's edition of The Open Word has been a blessing to you. If you live in the Casa Grande, Arizona area, we want to invite you to join us for worship. The messages that you hear on The Open Word are produced from worship services at Calvary Chapel, Casa Grande. Maybe the teaching you heard today is exactly what you're looking for in a church. Then please join us. We meet Saturday evenings and twice on Sunday morning, as well as throughout the week. For more information about when we meet for worship, including driving directions, log on to theopenword.com and then follow the link to the church website. Now here's Tracy with some more important information about how you can help support The Open Word. Radio programs like The Open Word are wonderful tools that God uses to advance His kingdom here on earth. And as with any ministry, there are expenses involved. Today's broadcast was professionally produced and God has given us a vision to see The Open Word expand into other parts of the world. Would you prayerfully consider financially supporting The Open Word? Log on to TheOpenWord.com and simply click on the support option to help us continue to grow. Thanks, Tracy. From all of us here with the production team, we want to say thank you for tuning in and may God richly bless you.